conquer local. It's really a breath of fresh air. Good times. I help leaders go from anxiety to authority under pressure. And then let's go and get it. It's an ecosystem. The hardest part here is going to be getting me to shut up on this one. Conquer Local with Vendasta. Hosted by Jeff Tomlin. Welcome to the Conquer Local podcast. Our show features successful sales leaders, marketers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs who will inspire you with their success stories. Each episode is packed with practical strategies as our guests share their secrets to achieving their dreams. Listen in and learn highlights of their remarkable accomplishments and get tips to revamp, rework, and reimagine your business. Whether you're a small business owner, a marketer, or aspiring entrepreneur, the Conquer Local Podcast is your ultimate guide to dominating your local market. Tune in now to take your business to the next level. I'm Jeff Tomlin, and on this episode, we're pleased to welcome Doug C. Brown. Doug is the CEO of CEO Sales Strategies and a sales revenue and profit growth expert. He has led client award-winning high-performance teams and pioneered profitable development programs for companies. He's advised companies such as Intuit, CBS Television, Procter & Gamble, and thousands of other businesses and entrepreneurs. As an independent division head, creating, training, and presenting high-impact, results-oriented web seminars for prospects of Tony Robbins and Chet Holmes, Doug increased division sales by 864% and close rates by 62% in just six months. Today, he helps businesses to increase revenue and profitably acquire clients by using strategies of top performers through the Top 1% Academy and advisory work. His newest venture is Vibitno, a software focused on sales efficiency and productivity for owners, managers, and sales professionals. Get ready, Conquerors, for Doug C. Brown coming up next on this week's episode of the Conquer Local Podcast. Doug C. Brown, welcome to the Conquer Local Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy day to join us here. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm very grateful that I'm here. Now, I understand you're coming to us from the, uh, the Boston area. Uh, you must be a Bruins fan. Is there any other fan when it comes to hockey? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm a, I'm an original six fan favorite, but usually cheer for the teams that are a little north of the border. <laughs> uh oh, uh oh. All right, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Nah, well, I... <laughs> you, you've been taking a round out of us for a couple of years now, so it's uh, uh, it, it it's tough on me. Well, I'm I'm sorry, but this year might be a little different because I'm a, I'm a little. Uh, a trepidatious is probably the word that I have for for the Boston Bruins team this year. Yeah, keep, well, our uh, team's doing good. You know, where where I, I end up going now, we've had a, a drought north of the border, so I, I tend now to just cheer for any Canadian team that can make it into the playoffs and and make a run. I think it's back '93 is is the last time we had a cup north of the border. Ah, uh, yeah, but but you folks have really uh, you have great food. It's real food and. Uh, you have health care. <laughs> you have very well, calm people. Well, <laughs> the food, uh, we, we, uh, we have everything that you can clog your arteries with, with and that's why we have the free health care up here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, uh, thanks again for joining us. You know, um, I was, uh, you know, going through your, your resume and you've, you've had a storied career and, you know, went through it here in the, in the intro a little bit, but um, you've got some, you know, really huge clients that uh, you've, you've had over the years and you've got a, a pretty incredible track record. So, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't get you to just to you know, tell us a little bit about the journey and, you know, how, how it started and how you, you know, you got to the level that you're at now. 
Well, it all started when I was age three. Uh, my father actually had us all work in, in his business when we were young. So uh, awesome. at age three, I was sweeping floors, 25 cents a week. I loved it. I got to buy all kinds of candy at the end of the week, you know, because awesome. back then candy literally was a, a handful for a penny. Uh, and we stayed with my dad's business through for pretty much the first 18 years of my life. And I always built like little side businesses. I had a music business, uh, a paper route, right? I wasn't old enough to get a paper route. So my brothers went out and they got paper routes and I took their paper routes. And then uh, I hired, I, I guess, deliverers, uh, you know, and they would do that. We'd all split up the commission. So I kind of learned entrepreneurship early on. Um, by age five, we were selling to clients at my dad's business. I still don't know if my dad did this because he wanted to teach us or he just could get low cost labor. I never had the chance to ask him. Uh, probably both. But, uh, it was, it was, yeah, probably both. And and it was, it was a great atmosphere to learn. Uh, and then, you know, I just kept building businesses all the way through my life, all the way through high school, uh, different ones. I had a body shop, a Christmas tree retailing store or, or location, I should say. Um, and I just, kept building businesses on the side. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was trying to find myself. Uh, and then I was in the military uh, in my 20s and I had side businesses through that. Came out of that and figured, geez, I need to have a college education because you can't make money otherwise, right? Which, mm -hmm. which I really didn't realize back then. So my 30s, I did that, uh, graduated. In my 40s, I started having a family at my late 30s. Um, and I started working for companies and I was working from my own businesses. And then all of a sudden, one business just really took and I left the corporate world and I never looked back at that point. It was just, you know, once I got my first, you know, good, solid seven figure plus business, I just was like, this is for me. I like having what I have and, you know, living the lifestyle I live. And I just kept building from there. Eventually, you know, I worked, as you said, into some very large companies and had them as clients. Uh, I helped a guy named Jay Comrade Levinson who wrote a book series called Guerrilla Marketing, and he introduced me into the training world. And I ended up eventually uh, as an independent, you know, working with Tony Robbins and Chet Holmes and uh, Russ Whitney who owned Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Deepak Chopra, Brian Tracy, all these brand names and helping them grow their revenues. I was the guy behind the, the, the scenes turning the, turning the dials of optimization, helping them grow their companies. Very, very cool. I, I, I think it's cool that you, you know, your father started you from such an early age so that, you know, entrepreneurship was, it probably just came naturally to you because it's, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, it's a, it's a leap to, you know, to move out on your own and to move into the world of entrepreneurship. If you decide to do it a little later on, it seems like it must've been just natural for you. I think it was, I think it was very natural. I did the same with my daughters. Right. I got them very involved very early. Um, I, I loved it because all my friends were still in school and I got out by 11 a.m. and I went to work and I was making money. I always had money at the end of the week. Right. And they didn't um, have as much. Not because that's like a braggadocious thing, but it was just more of a I loved having the freedom to go buy stuff. Even for my friends. Right. So we would just go out and they'd be like, well, I'm a little short. I'm like, I got it. You know, and, and I didn't know any better because I was just a kid, uh, you know, back then. But I knew I knew that gave me leverage. And that's what I was looking for. I'm going to I'm going to jump around in the timeline uh, a little bit here and, sure. and and fast forward to sort of where you're at now, because I, I was 
uh, really interested, uh, you know, in um, reading your background and whatnot, what you're currently doing right now. You've, you've, you've started a software company and uh, the, right. the name's Vibitno. And I, and I, I believe you're, you know, you're focusing on automated prospecting and, uh, and per personalization and, and, uh, and automated follow-up process. And it's, it, the first question that I had, you know, all, all great products, you know, they've got a, they've got a story behind the name. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about the name, where'd it come from? How'd you come up with it? Yeah. And so it's a Slavic name and uh, I came up with it because I was trying to come up with something that represented what the product would actually be. Right. And, and so the Slavic name is you matter. It's like the, you know, the sub uh. sublime or you matter. Right. And so, and I really like the name, the, you know, Vibitno, but that really encompassed what I was trying to do because it started, Vibitno started between myself and a friend of mine who we were both top players in selling for pretty good sized companies. And we went to a place called Panera Bread uh, and we sat down and we were just complaining about all the stuff we couldn't get done because, you know, I had 62 incoming leads a day coming into me and I couldn't get back to people. And I was like, man, if I just had a system that would do X, Y, and Z. And he's like, oh, that would be great if it could do A, B, and C. So we wrote it all down on the back of a napkin. And I was like, nothing like this exists. There's nothing personalized, meaningful, relevant in the pursuit of follow-up. There's nothing that really helps people at the time. Uh, you know, with, with prospecting, how can you automate that process without getting away from you matter, right? Like, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I get, I get bombarded today with emails and I just looked at them and I just quickly, about 72% of the emails that came in to me today actually were completely irrelevant. And then I had uh, emails come in uh, last night, which were saying, um, you know, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays or whatever. Now, one of them is for a vendor for our company and he sent it three times. He doesn't even know he sent the same email. So it's like the personalizations are completely gone out of that email at this point, right? Because yeah. it's like, I'm looking at it and I'm going, my God, why did he send this three times? And I look at it, it's, it's the same email, but the first time he left my name out of it, yeah. the second time it, it, it had the wrong name and the third time it had my wife's name. Yeah. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, so it's like, there's no connection in the communication and so Vibitno was built for that purpose because sometimes sales cycles are long. I've, it's taken me sometimes two, three years to close sales that are very large. Right? So how do we stay in touch with somebody, make that automated as much as possible, personalized and meaningful and relevant to what's going on? That's what Vibitno was. I, I like that. You know, uh, we used to say, uh, you know, about marketing automation and and that space because you know it sounds like the guy you're talking about got some automations went rogue on him and he's lost track of what he's got firing in in a system right. we used to say that you know biggest piece of you know of marketing automation is writing content and the only thing that isn't automated is actually content creation and being a, right. you know and it's and it's the biggest piece of uh, of the puzzle um and uh, and by the way, that's that's what we're sort of focusing on on the in the small business side with our with our snapshot uh, over at Vendasta. So I, I really like that approach. Um, you, you know, but, um, 
Messaging is really important, you know, talking about the content. And w one of the things that I was uh, curious and wanted to ask you about was, you know, the work that you've done in and around messaging um, with your clients. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I find a lot, a lot of people, well, they, they struggle in that area. And the businesses that really stand out are ones that can really create contrast between themselves and what else is out there in the, in the market. So talk a little bit about, you know, the work that you do with your clients and, and um, how, you, how you help them stand out. First step out of all of this is identify really who the, are the true ideal buyers. So part of the reason that companies don't stand out is because they're trying to market to a too wide of a message. They're throwing a message out and we're saying, oh, we'll get all the fish in the sea, so to speak, right? And the reality is that if we look at this, I, we've identified five characteristics of people uh, on this uh, when it comes to the buyer. And if you have others, please let me know, Jeff. But firstly, there, there's, a, there's a percentage of the audience that's going to be indifferent to any message, right? Or indifferent to an offer. And right. they just don't care one way or another. Like, eh, it's not for me. Yep. Then there's going to be the pretender market. So if we look at this in five pillars, if you will, the pretender market is those people that are going to say, Yes, but they're thinking no. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. you know, so again, if we're crafting messages to people like that, we're not, we're not going to stand out. It's just going to be one of those things that they, they go, oh, that's cool. I don't want it. Then there's the potential category, which is the third category. And this is where people get confused. Half that category roughly is still thinking toward the pretenders. Half that category is thinking toward you know, I'm actively looking for a solution, but they, they don't really have it well identified. And so then what we get is the, the fourth category, which we call Kaizen players. Kaizen players are those people that are looking actively for the solution. And then the fifth category is the eager, eager beavers, if you will. And those are the people that are like, I'm looking for the solution. I'm ready to go, et cetera, et cetera. The big challenge for most people when they're creating messaging is they're not creating it for the upper two categories because they've never really identified what these people are really looking for. And then taking half of the potential category that will go that, that direction through that messaging. So that's step number one. You, we must identify what they're looking for. And, uh, and a lot of times they're not. You know, you're in different people, you pretenders and part of the potentials, they're looking something that is usually a lower end that, that, or they're looking for something that's not quite what the Kaizen players or the upper, you know, e eager beavers are looking for. So I think I find that's where most people miss the messaging and can't differentiate is between not being able to identify who the true buyer is and marketing to that specific. Yeah. And um, so for, like formulas are really, really important and have and having frameworks to, to, to work from. And so are, are those, you know, five components that you're talking about, sort of the, the framework that you work from to help close sales faster um, and focusing on, the, uh, on those top categories? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, number one is uh, the first step would be, you know, identify the right buyer. Yeah. Right. So. So, so many people are talking to people who just aren't going to buy regardless, and they're not qualifying that or disqualifying that, but they don't do it up front, right? So it's kind of like, um, <laughs> I, you know, I have a friend, Dave, uh, super nice guy. 
Uh, he, he used to walk around telling me all the time, there are no good women out there. I can't find a good date. And so I sat with him one day and I, Dave, out of the whatever, hundreds of millions of women in the, in the world, there's not one that's a good date. And he's like, oh, I got your point. I said, well, let's talk about what you're looking for. And so we did. And he said, I'd like a church going woman. I'd like a, somebody with a master's degree uh, who is highly educated. She wants a family. She wants this many kids. She wants that. Uh, and I said, well, Dave, tell me where you're, where you're, you're marketing for this. He goes, well, I go to the bars and I, I go, Dave, brother, what kind of church going woman's firstly going to, there might be some, but they're yeah. not going to be, you know? And so I said, well, why don't you, and you know, what are you saying to these people? And then he'd walk up with this cheesy line and I'd be like, D no, no. So I'd said, why don't we try this? Why don't we find a, a university or college? that has a re religious affiliation, like Holy Cross or something, which we live near. Yeah. And you go to like a social there. And instead of asking her this cheesy line, why don't you just walk up to her and say, I don't know if you find me attractive. I find you attractive. I was wondering if we could have a cup of coffee to see if you're looking for some type of relationship down the future. Right. Just something sim simple as that. And Jeff, sure as heck, he goes to the social first night. Finds the lady. He was with her four and a half years down the line and they were getting married. So <laughs> he just needed a lesson is, in marketing. <laughs> he did. He did. Right. So it's finding the right target buyer is the first step in this process. And that's why, you know, you don't go to the pretended category. You don't go to the indifferent category. You, don't, you know, stay out of the bottom half of the, of the potential category and get up to the people who are actually looking for what we are. And then we have to determine their business return on investment and personal return on investment. That's step two. The, the, the business personal thing is really important because most people forget the personal return on investment. So especially when we're dealing with people who are like corporate buyers or, or, or whatever, yeah. a lot of times they have self-interest, so don't business owners, self-interest as well as a business interest. And most people are selling to the business interest. They're, they're not taking into consideration what goes... If this doesn't go right, what happens after the fact? Yeah. You know, some people like buyers, they get fired, right? Or they, they don't get promoted. Uh, I once talked to a, a, a CFO who said, you know, I'd be interested in doing this, but if it doesn't go right, I don't get my quarterly bonus. Yeah. Well, right. That's a personal return on investment that they're looking for because that bonus represents something at home. Yeah. And so we as sellers need to know. Uh, the third thing is determine how they want to be communicated with, because a lot of people don't really think about how do you communicate with somebody. Believe it or not, people have a discussion language like we have, and then they have a preferred mode of buying. And so we want to identify that. We do that through asking questions. Uh, and we, I think the most important thing that people miss though, Jeff, they don't determine their own value in the sale. And ask the question yeah. like, okay, is my value actually supporting this business ROI and this personal ROI? And if not, they don't disengage. And that's where you get buyer's remorse. That's where you sell something that, you know, maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't work out. And then uh, I think the, probably the most important thing for people to actually do once they've identified all these is really ask the tough, the tough questions, the questions that make people go, hmm. I want to hear more about that. Not, you know, eh, so what? Or, you know, have them saying things to themselves like, geez, I didn't know that. Wow, tell me more about that. 
because those are engaging points of view where that differentiates more than anything in a sale, in a selling capacity. Because when we can make people think beyond and stretch their, their abilities, then we're, we're actually giving them the opportunity for growth. And that's a human need. We all have it. So what I find that most people can't close the sale many times, they're just not asking the tough enough questions to get people to actually raise their eyebrows and think. You know, and so that's kind of a five-part framework to it. I like that a lot. You, you know, you, one thing that you made me think about there is, um, you know, the the personal investment that someone has in a potential transaction, and uh, you know what, right. what I've I've seen a lot when, you know, uh, even you know here at Vendasta or at other people that we work with, as they build out their ideal customer profile and they actually you know they document what that looks like, you know, there's you know, um, uh, functional benefits and emotional benefits. And I find those like emotional benefits, they they really gloss over those, you know, they, yeah. they you know, the team, they kind of check the box to say, okay, we, we put some things down here, but they don't really deeply understand, you know, for that type of buyer, like what is really making them tick in, 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 in a lot right. of cases. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I had a, um, one time when I was selling, um, telecommunication services and, and wireless services on the corporate side, I literally had a buyer say to me, listen, if this doesn't go well, if this goes bad, I'm not going down alone. Right. <laughs> it was like, yeah. right out. Right. And so we had to figure out at that moment, I had to, what is this personal ROI that he's looking for? And so we should be asking questions of our, ourselves, of the buyers. What do they want? What do they value? What do they fear? You know, um, what's most important to them, what's least important to them. We want to figure out those answers to those questions because those are going to give us a pretty good indication of what the personal ROI is. And if we're having meaningful, relevant conversation and building trust, then they're going to tell us stuff anyways. I mean, I've had people tell me, hey, I'm going through a divorce. Uh, you know, uh, you know, my, 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 my child has, you know, cancer, whatever it might be. I mean, sad stories, uh, but they trust enough so that they open up and now you know or have a better idea of how this is going to impact them. And that's the key in selling because we're human beings, we're not titles, but people are always trying to sell to the title. Oh, they're the CEO, they must think like this. Well, yeah, but you know what, the CEO, uh, I'm sure Steve Jobs on his deathbed or prior to that was probably thinking more about quality of life than he ever had. Yeah. Right. So he's yeah. still a human being. All these people are not, you know, you're not selling to directors, folks. You're not selling to VPs. You're selling to human beings who have titles. So that's where the personal ROI comes in, the yeah. human being side. Super, super insightful, Doug. Um, I, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you uh, about like organizations now um, because, uh, and I imagine that you've come across this a lot with the clients that you've worked with. Um, a lot of uh, companies start, uh, trying to scale too quickly um, before they yes. have b b before they have fit, and uh, and I, I wanted to ask you about you know maybe some some of the, the the common mistakes that you see companies make in trying to scale their sales. Yeah, the first the, well, the first mistake is they they scale it too early before they're even stable. <clears throat> so, you know, you talk to budding entrepreneurs, let's say. <clears throat> And they're like, I want $52 million in my first year. 
And it's like, okay, uh, are you a million dollar company yet? No. <laughs> so the, the thing is, is when we scale too early, we can actually implode the company because what we, everything has a cost to it. So there's a cost of sale. And a lot of people, when they're selling and they're not realizing how to run the division or a company, <clears throat> they got great aspirations, but they're not figuring in that cost of sale. And the reality is, hey, I watched one company uh, one time, they would do what they call a midnight madness sale twice a year. And basically, they would open their company up at midnight. They were a retail music company. Yeah. They would bring their clientele in and they would sell everything at cost. And it was like, it was not even marked up. And so what happened in that case is they never realized there's a cost to the sale. So they trained their people, even though they grew by millions of dollars that year, yeah. they trained their people to come to these two midnight madness sales per year. And they were actually selling at a loss and they put themselves out of business. Right. And so when we try to scale something, we want to make sure not only do we have profit margins into it, but we also have operational processes and customer service and everything that needs to support that growth. That doesn't mean we have to have it in there 100%. There is a time to kick off regardless, but the reality is that most companies are trying to do it too early and they're not prepared to do it, Jeff. And so what ends up happening is something or the company itself implodes in the process of scaling too fast. And that would be, you know, what I see is as the biggest mistake because they're not, they're not budgeting for it. And, you know, so let's say that uh, we have a tangible product that we've got to actually buy from a manufacturer and then we got to bring in. Well, if we scale too fast, we can't fulfill orders. And so then we get a reputation out in the industry, like, oh yeah, they're good people, but they, they're not reliable. Right. And that can spread throughout the community and that can hurt us as much as anything. So we want to make sure that we have our financials in order, the operations in order, everything as much as we can to anticipate the, the growth if we're going to truly scale. I really like the uh, um, example that you have of the, the bricks and mortar uh, store that, you know, put itself out of business because um, in the software as a service I industry, the metrics around and, and the sort of the model around SaaS is largely figured out now, yeah. um, you know, over the last few years that there's a conclusion that they've we've sort of figured out how you know what are the key metrics and how to how to grow it I see a lot of companies focus on um you know really measuring how their cost of revenue and how much does it cost yeah. to to generate a lead and how much does it cost uh, eventually to to uh, acquire a customer and then acquire that revenue um, whether you're expanding existing customers or acquiring new customers. But one metric that um, I see a lot of companies not paying attention to is a cost to serve, which is you know, sort of what you're talking about. Hey, what are all the other things, the costs around you know, running the business? And uh, you know, cost to serve uh, focuses on you know, your support costs, the software maintenance costs, you know, the, the foundational costs that it, it, it Caught it, that it, um, yeah, it costs the business to actually serve the customer after you've got them, and and so, anyways, that it's just a side anecdote that your your story resonated there with me a hundred percent. Well, yeah, thanks. I mean, there's too many companies try to do it too quickly without the correct parameters in place, and it gets them in trouble. Yeah, um, it, you know, uh, one of the things that you write about is the the importance of selling mindset. You know, um, so. 
Uh, I wonder if you, you could just take a second and t talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the, the selling mindset and, the, and, and its importance, whether, whether we're talking B, B2B or a B2C type businesses. So the selling mindset is so important on the process of, of success within a company or an individual seller. Um, and it never ceases to amaze me. Like we can have, you know, the components of activity. We can have the components of skill. But when we don't have the right mindset around that process, what ends up happening in that whole process is it falls apart. Um, because... I, I've, I've seen people do things uh, specifically like um, undo their sale due to the fact that they've got the sale closed, but then what ends up happening is they say something that will unravel that sale. Let me give you an example. Uh, I was watching a real estate uh, person at one time and the husband and wife were going back and forth. Now this house was almost $5 million. And so, you know, at a 6% commission, it's a pretty healthy commission yeah. uh, for, for most people, right? And so what ended up happening was the husband was like, I, I don't know if I want to buy the house. You know, I, I just, I, I'm not feeling it. And she's selling it like crazy. And I'm watching this happen. She's like, well, honey, let's, let's look at out here where the pool is. The kids could be out here. They could be having, you know, barbecue and we could be doing this. And, you know, how happy we are, the family. And he's like, well, I really don't know. She'd take him up to the to the bedroom and it overlooked this beautiful, uh, you know, uh, Vista and she'd be like selling it hard. Like she wanted this house and he, uh, in turn was just like, I'm really not sure. And she said these words to him, Jeff, sweetheart, I will go back to work and I will pay the mortgage myself from my law practice. <laughs> and you don't even have to worry about it. That's how much she wanted this house. Wow. And right in the middle of this, the real estate, agent said to them, you know, guys, I see you going back and forth. Uh, this is a pretty big decision. I think you ought to maybe take some time and go out and have lunch and think about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, oh my goodness. Right. And so this person had some high need to please people on the mindset side of this process that they let the sale walk out of, out of there. Now here's literally what happened. The, they said, well, we'll get back to you in a couple of days then. Okay. Two days come by. They're now ghosting this real estate agent. Yep. The real estate agent finally gets them, I think it was three days later. And they said, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. We didn't get back to you. Yeah. Um, well, Hey, what did you think of the house? Love the house, but you know what? We bought another house. Yeah. Where down around the corner, same neighborhood. How much? $6 million. There's a million dollars more than they actually were going to buy this house for. <laughs> and so the point being is when we allow our mindset to get in, 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 in the way, then what we end up doing is we end up undoing sales. We, we, we say things we may not, you know, want to, um, but we do anyways. And this all stems pretty much from childhood all the way up. So from childhood, what happens is we're conditioned as human beings. Yeah. We learn how to act, think, we're rewarded, we're not rewarded. And some of the things that we do when we're a child, for example, we get a little older and we go, eh, it doesn't really feel right. Like, you know, if you grew up in a, in a, a household that you negotiate everything, right? But you get a good deal on a sale and your, your dad or mom is still negotiating. You're like, well, this was good enough. 
right? But you don't say anything. So we end up adapting these behaviors and habits as we get older. And when we bring them into selling, then what ends up happening is we actually negotiate after we close the sale and we unravel the sale type thing. And so this is where it all comes from, I have found. But yeah, that's it's we we want to we want to have the uh, the thought process of do the right thing by them, yeah, do the right thing by us, and make sure it's a good fit. And if it is, we have a moral obligation to do everything we can to make sure that they acquire it. And if it's not, we have a moral obligation to walk away to be the first. Yeah, but we don't want to unravel the thing unnecessarily. Doug, I'm going to pile onto your idea because I, I've also seen this in uh, organizations like software organizations like us, where there's other people that support the sales process, you know, post-sale uh, that don't have the selling yeah. mindset and they unravel the deals, whether it's the people that are doing onboarding or customer support, um, uh, people on the software side of things, if they're providing uh, professional services, you know, on the back end uh, of the deal. Uh, I, I'd, so I would say that that selling mindset is critical for everyone in the organization that, uh, as well that supports that sale. Absolutely. And it needs to come from the top down uh, throughout. So, you know, I have a, uh, I would call him a friend. Uh, and he, as a CEO, his motto is, how do we do business with you? And we're a pleasure always to do business with. That is the mindset that he infuses through his, through his organization. And you're absolutely right. With a, uh, actually, with a SaaS product, it just happened to uh, some, uh, some of the people who work here. We, we were investing in a new SaaS product, but their customer service was not getting back to us for three days. And we were, we were like trying to implement the thing in the company, and they just weren't getting back. So they came to, uh, it actually trickled back up to me, um, and they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, find another one. Yep. Right. Because we can't wait three days. It costs us X amount of dollars every time this happens. And so, you know, customer service can certainly unravel it. And one of the biggest challenges that companies have, and I think SaaS companies, most of them are terrible at doing this. Sorry if you get some hate mail off this one. <laughs> um, but they, they think they're only supposed to communicate electronically. And they think that they can communicate whenever time frame that they want. Not all, but a lot of them. And so what ends up happening is they, they have introduced doubt into yeah. the process at that point by doing so. And please remember SaaS companies, including mine, we all have competitors. Yep. And unless they're in a very tight contract, which many of them are not, they're, they're, they can, the they're just going to move. Yep. You know what I mean? Like if they can move. And so they'll move from point A to point B, and then we lose, the, lose that. And all we've done at that point is prep our competition for a very high, profitable, you know, easy acquisition sale. Yep. And um, 100%. I, I got a client right now who's got a CRM system, and they're pulling their hair out. And I'm like, they're asking me, what, what should I do? And I'm like, let's just move it. Move it. Right? And, and it's like CRMs, there's so many out there. Yep. And for what they're looking for, there's literally – hundreds or thousands that could possibly do what they want. So it's, it's, it's just one of those things and the clients at the point now, and it's all a customer service thing, Jeff, they're not getting back to the client. It's taking them sometimes upwards of a week to get a response back. Yeah. It's just not acceptable. Yeah. And, and there's too much competition out there. Uh, the, yeah. You know, Doug, I could talk to you uh, all day long about this kind of stuff. And uh, um, I, I think like a bunch of this stuff is like so insightful. Um, 
And I've got you for free on the podcast. I don't even have to pay you right now to do this. <laughs> I'm going to squeeze every bit I can. Oh, you can you can send money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, but before we go, I, I did want you to tell tell us uh, like a quick story about the uh, about the top one percent academy, and uh, because yeah. we we hadn't touched on that, so so give us a quick story about that. Yeah. So we we developed something called the 1% Academy because <clears throat> what I was finding was a lot of people are teaching sales training, but they're not really teaching how to think and act like a 1% earner. And so what we did is we took and we infused the concepts of how do you think like a 1% earner, act like a 1% earner, and then infuse conversational conversion and massive prospecting. You know, the, the three things, the activity, the skill sets, the mindset plus the fourth, which most people are not teaching is how do you create leverage in your day to day? How do you create leverage in your selling activities and in selling in your process? Because when you look, when I study the 1% and then my team study the 1%, the one thing that the 1% has is leveraged activities in the, everything that they do, everything that they think about. Um, and so we put this academy together where we literally take people in on a boot camp style and we're meeting on a very uh you know sometimes two to four times a week and we're we're drilling and, and drilling and drilling and skills and activities and mindset and leverage techniques into the process so that they can take them and infuse them back into their sales business or their company uh in in general and, and infuse it through their through their selling team and just crazy the charts results that we've been getting you know, in the, uh, in the original runs that we did. I mean, I had one guy in his first year, he went from 140,000 in commissions to 2.1 million Giddy up. at the same company, same job. <laughs> we had another uh, person who was selling average ticket items at $15,000. And uh, she, in her second month, she sold a $300,000 ticket item. And then she upped her game where she's now selling $100,000 ticket items on a regular basis, right? Just off the chart stuff where people were just getting all of this fantastic uh, end game results out of, out of doing this. And I was like, all right, well, you know, these were trial runs that we were running. And I'm like, well, if, if it's this good now, why don't we just bring it out into the world? Because there's so many people out there who wanna make more money, but they're just, they don't have the leverage in the process. And they don't, you know, we act as sales accountability partners. So like literally they're turning in sales sheets. We're discussing, you know, a deal flow, all of that stuff that would go on that sales managers are supposed to be doing, but some of them don't, many of them don't, uh, you know, we're coaching their people through and providing the leverage component and they love the leverage component. Cause that's what gets the, the, the hockey stick curve, if you will, Yeah. not to go back to hockey. Cause I know we talked about that at the beginning, but <laughs> We could so, talk about hockey all you want. It's been very gratifying. Uh, Doug, <laughs> Doug, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, spending a few minutes with you here on the podcast and picking your brain and uh, learning from you. And uh, I hope that we could do this again in the future. Hey, if uh, people wanted to reach out to you and uh, continue the conversation, how do they connect with you? There's a couple of ways. Um, if they send a, an email into youmatter, Y-O-U-M-A-T-T-E-R, yeah. Uh, at CEOSalesStrategies.com. Um, that goes, uh, I'll definitely get, get it. My team will pick it up first. If they want to send it directly to me. It's Doug at CEO Sales Strategies. If they want to learn more about me. My LinkedIn is Doug Brown, one, two, three, four. 
I'm sorry, I do this every time. It's Doug Brown one two three on LinkedIn, uh, and you know they can they can check out uh, our website at CEOSalesStrategies.com. Um, we have you know uh, we got eBooks that they could download on. I wrote one called uh, the Nonstop One Percent Earner if they're interested in the Academy. Uh, I've got one on objections. I've got you know different things that they can pick up for you know for free there. I love it, Doug C Brown. Thanks for joining us in the Conquer Local podcast. I wish you the best and look forward to doing this again in the future. Thanks so much, Jeff. I'm very grateful to, to be here today and uh, you're a great interviewer. So thanks again. I love the anecdotes. You know, we talked about implementing personalization and sales messaging. I doubt it discussed how crucial it is to personalize sales messages, you know, from identifying ideal buyers to tailoring messages for specific buyer categories, you know, from keen players to eager beavers. This personalized approach ensures your communication stands out. Now, according to Doug, it's a game changer for engaging potential clients and closing sales effectively. Moving on to the second takeaway is Doug's five essential components for closing sales. You know, these components cover everything from identifying the right target buyer and determining their ROI to understanding their preferred communication method, asking the right questions, and presenting engaging points of view. You know, focusing on these help to build trust and understand buyer motivations and ultimately achieve successful outcomes. If you've enjoyed Doug C. Brown's episode discussing sales and revenue, keep the conversation going and revisit some of our older episodes from the archives. Check out episode 647, Leveraging the Lighthouse Strategy and Attracting High-Profile Clients with Dennis Yu, or episode 639, Key Steps and Strategies to Prepare Your Agency for Sale with Richard Parker. Until next time, I'm Jeff Tomlin. Get out there and be awesome. You've been listening to the Conquer Local podcast presented by Vendasta. Tune in next week for a new episode. Guest discovery and produced by Suleiman Adam. Marketing by Rory Lawford, Brandon Moore, and Suleiman Adam. Executive producers, Brendan King, Jeff Tomlin, and Suleiman Adam. Recorded at Vendasta headquarters on the Canadian prairies.